A very warm good morning to all of you. My name is Malcolm Duncan. If you're joining us online, thank you for taking the time to do that and the time to be here. I have the privilege of leading the church here at Dundonald and I know that it is a decision that we make to worship together and to come together. So thank you for for doing that. We don't take it lightly. Um, On a personal note, um, I'd love to ask you for your prayers. Our daughter, uh, Anna, and her fiancé, Jacob, get married tomorrow at uh, one o'clock. And we're really looking forward to that. Uh, It's all done by the shouting, as they say. Um, but uh, we're really looking forward to that. They're here this morning, so if you do get a chance to see them, um, just say hello to them. And to friends and family, some that have gathered and and will gather over the next few days, but some that are here, it's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for coming and being part of our service this morning. Would you please turn with me, please, to the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. We've been making our way through this book together, and uh, this morning we come to our sixth and our final exploration of it, We're going to read from verse 16 down to the end of the book. (coughs) Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. If you don't know where it is, just use your index. It's much easier than um, getting lost in all of those books in the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I read from the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. Habakkuk is speaking and he says, I hear and I tremble within. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones and my steps tremble beneath me. I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines. Though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food. Though the flock is cut off from the fold, And yet there is no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights to the leader with stringed instruments. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. And so we come to the end of this journey through the book of Habakkuk. What has happened to him? This is a man who at the beginning of this book, obviously he wasn't writing it as he said it, but at the beginning of this journey was saying to God, why have you allowed these things to happen? Where are you when trouble hits us? Why is um, godlessness allowed to prosper within the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel? Why aren't you intervening? God answers him and tells him that he's about to bring judgment through a group of people called the Chaldeans. We know them as the Babylonians. And Habakkuk responds to that answer from God by saying, well, that's not fair. How could you possibly use people that are less godly than those that you're judging to judge them? And God explains again to him that he hasn't finished his task. Habakkuk listens to the explanation again. And he gets to verse 17 of chapter 3, the closing words of this um, excerpt of his life. And he says, Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vines, though the produce of the olive fields and the fields yield no food, though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. What has happened to him? At the beginning of this journey... He's questioning, he's angry, he's confused, he's um, in a row, an argument, and a tryst with God. 
And by the end of it, he says, no matter what happens, I'll praise you. What happened to him? Because that's a journey that many of us, I think, would like to make. Those of us that are caught in all of the uncertainty of life are hit by the storms of life in unexpected ways. I think most Christians that I have ever met who have gone through storms and found them shaking their lives, most, I would say 99% of them, want to get out the other side still trusting God. It's not like they want to lose faith. It's not as if they want to lose their way. But when life hits them hard, they waver, they struggle, they, they shake, they wonder where God is. But nearly every Christian I've ever met wants to come out the other side of a storm saying, yet I will still praise you. In the words of the song that Paul, our church secretary and worship leader this morning, chose, through it all, yet I will praise you. What happened to Habakkuk that enabled him to make that journey? We hear in chapter 3, verse 16, 17 through to the end, the words of a man who has learned to trust God despite uncertainty, in the face of difficulty, when this community is ravaged by sin and when judgment from the people of Babylon or the Chaldeans as he calls them is absolutely inevitable. If you read verse 16 of chapter 3, you hear towards the second half of it, I wait quietly for the day of calamity to come upon the people who attack us. Verse 17 picks up those same words. And Habakkuk, I think, is probably looking ahead in time to the day when the Chaldeans will ravage his nation. He's looking through all of the judgment that God is going to bring, all of the pain and the heartbreak and the sorrow that that is going to laden on his community and says, despite this, I will rejoice in God, my Savior. He's made a journey from lament to trust. He's made a journey from questioning to trusting. I want to qualify what I mean by it when I say that. I don't believe that Habakkuk stops asking questions. I just think he's asking them with a different heart. A few weeks ago, Pastor Tyler was preaching on our passage in Habakkuk. He said something which I thought was profoundly important. There is a difference between questioning God and indicting him. Habakkuk has stopped putting God in the dock. I don't think that means that every answer he is happy with or every response he understands entirely. For him to get to that place, I think, is to get to a place that most of us, all of us, will only reach when we come face to face with God through Jesus Christ, either upon his return or our death, whichever comes first. But this is the journey that he has made. A journey from accusing God to trusting God. A journey when those questions become part of his genuine, honest, open, vulnerable, real, transparent faith. But they are no longer asked with an attitude of, you must justify yourself to me. You must explain everything to me. I need every answer before I will trust you. How do I know that that's where he gets? Because verse 17 is full of uncertainty. Read it again slowly as I am talking to you. Even if... Though the fig tree doesn't blossom, even if there's no fruit on the vine, even if the olives fail, even if the fields uh, yield no food, even if the flock is cut off, even if the herd is 
not any longer in the stall. Even if everything falls apart, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He's not saying everything's going to be fine. He's not saying it's going to be an easy walk. He's saying no matter what happens, I've come to a place where I can trust you. He has learned what it is to have faith in God despite everything that's going on around about him. I want to make three simple observations about that with you this morning. This is about faith amidst fruitlessness. This is about rejoicing in the ruins. And this is about a declaration of ultimate deliverance in the desert. If any of us don't need those lessons, I think I want to buy some of your pills. But before I get to those three simple things, I want to do something which is slightly more difficult, but help you to understand some of the deeper um, underlying messages that might sit with these words, particularly um, Habakkuk's use of the words or the images of the fig tree and the vine. I want to do this now because I'm going to come back to it in my conclusion to this message. Fig trees and vines for the Jewish people were a profoundly important um, image of God's faithfulness to them and of them as the people of Israel. They appear right across the whole of the Old Testament as images of God's words to humanity and God's words to his people Israel. And the things that you see devastated here, figs, fig trees, olive um, trees, uh, vines, herds, are all used within the context of the Old Testament on more than one occasion to speak of the, the sense of utter desolation that could fall on a community. I want to read to you from Joel chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. The fields are devastated, the ground mourns, for the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up, the oil fails. Be dismayed, you farmers, wait, you wail, you vine dressers. After the wheat and the barley and over them, for the crops of the field are ruined. The vine withers, the fig tree droops. Pomegranates, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up. And then he says this, surely joy withers away amongst the people. Almost the opposite to what Habakkuk says. Because the natural reaction when those things happen is for joy to go. It is supernatural for joy to remain amidst devastation. It is supernatural for faith to stay strong when the desert is all around us. And that tells us that that only comes from God. That ability to stand in the midst of a storm, to stand amidst fruitlessness, to stand in the desert, only comes from God. Those words of utter devastation, listen to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 17, uh, describing around about the time that Habakkuk is describing, actually. They shall eat up, this is what Jeremiah says about the, the people that will come in on Judah, the kingdom that um, Habakkuk um, is part of and sees being devastated. Jeremiah says of the Babylonians, they shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up your sons and daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. They shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy with the sword your fortified cities in which you trust. 
You see, in Habakkuk chapter three, he is looking forward to the certain anticipated destruction of his community's material possessions, of their well-being, of their, of their sustenance, of all the things that will keep them going, all destroyed by the Babylonians um, two or three decades after Habakkuk writes the words that he writes. The fig tree and the vine are symbols of God's grace and mercy to Israel and then become symbols themselves of Israel. Those of you that know your Bibles will know that in the um, creation story, when Adam and Eve fall, the only tree that is named in the Garden of Eden is the tree that is named from which leaves are taken to provide a covering for their nakedness and their shame, and it's a fig tree. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, as the children of Israel walk into the promised land, this is how it's described to them. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with wheat and barley, vines and fig trees, pomegranates, olive oil and honey. In the Old Testament, figs became synonymous or representative of the covering of our shame. Fig trees somehow symbolized God's mercy and grace towards us, his sustenance of us. But more importantly, they become synonymous with Israel itself. In Hosea chapter 9, we read this in verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I find Israel, declares the Lord. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your ancestors, but they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to a thing of shame and became detestable, just as the thing that they loved was detestable. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, there's a time in Israel described when Israel lived in prosperity and we're told that they lived under the covering of their vines and their fig trees. This fig tree idea contained in Habakkuk, and I've, I'm pretty sure he wasn't aware of all of this layering, is synonymous of God's faithfulness to his people. In the New Testament, it is under a fig tree that God calls Nathaniel through the Lord Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 48 to 50. In Mark chapter 11, it is a fig tree that Jesus curses as a symbol of what his ministry has brought into the world and the challenge of the Jewish people as they rejected him at that time. Then in Matthew chapter 24, he talks about the withered fig tree as a sign of the times. In Revelation chapter 6, 13, the fig tree is used again as a symbol. All over the Bible, there's a symbol of the fig tree as a, as a kind of symbol of God's, uh, of, of Israel and its relationship with God. Do I think Habakkuk meant all of that? No, but I think there's something for us to learn from all of that. Trying to get this so that you can understand what I'm trying to say is important. I think what Habakkuk does is he stands in the midst of all of the uncertainty around him and all of the uncertainty that's going to come. And he says, if everything falls apart, if everything breaks, then I will still praise you. I will still trust you. He has learned faith amidst fruitlessness. If I took you to Israel today, fig trees are blossoming like they've never blossomed before. They have two seasons, one in April around the season of Passover and one in spring around the season of Rosh Hashanah, which is the day of trumpets, Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement and the, uh, the festival of Sukkot, which is the feast of tabernacles. I don't wanna go into all the details of this this morning. I just wanna say this in passing. God may have extended his grace and his mercy to those of us beyond the Jewish community, but he has not yet finished with Israel. 
He is not yet finished with his people. He's not yet finished with those that he called to be a covenant symbol to the world. And I think that one day when our Messiah returns, there will be something powerful, remarkable, and life-changing that will happen in that land. But Habakkuk is not talking about any of those things here. What does this faith in the midst of fruitlessness mean? I want you to note again some of the things that are listed. Habakkuk talks about vines, he talks about figs, he talks about olives, he talks about herds, he talks about cattle. All all physical things. All material things. In many ways, all social things, economic things, agricultural things, things upon which they are financially dependent. But at no point does he say, that means God has abandoned us. We can discover faith amidst fruitlessness when we remember that everything could happen to us, but God will never walk away from us. The New Testament tells us that. Jesus has promised to every believer, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He's either telling the truth or he isn't, sisters and brothers. The Bible is the inspired and infallible word of God. Jesus doesn't tell lies. Listen to his words again. I will never leave you. Habakkuk didn't have the words of Jesus, but he did have the words of the Father echoing in his heart and in his soul. Faith in the midst of fruitlessness can come to us when we remember that even when we feel that God is absent, he is not. Even when life looks unfair, even when it is unfair, even when bad things happen to us, even when the inexplicable knocks on our door and tries to drag us away, God remains present. Faith amidst fruitlessness is looking at the circumstances of our life. And even when those circumstances point away from God, point away from his grace and his mercy, we hold on to something deeper because in the end it is the only thing that we can hold on to. And that is the promise of God. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. There are women and men boys and girls, young people and older people, sitting here this morning, watching online. And the idea that you should just keep rejoicing and celebrating and clapping and singing with a grin in your face through what you've had to walk through in the last five or six years or five or six months or five or six weeks is not just difficult, it's preposterous. Because your life has been fraught with heartbreak, marked with danger and difficulty and sorrow. You are walking through some of the darkest days that you will ever experience. Here is the word of the Lord for you this morning. Even in the darkness, I am there. Even when you don't feel me, I am there. It is okay to call out to me. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to shout. It's okay to be uncertain because I am still your God. I will not leave you. Paul, the apostle, understood this profoundly. 
He wrote to the church in Rome and he wanted them to understand something that was deeper and more difficult than anything you could ever understand in human terms. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 31, he says, what are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but give him up for his all, will he not with him also freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, and was raised to life. Who is at the right hand of God who indeed intercedes for us? Who or what will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced the word in Greek is a legal term that a judge would use saying, having weighed up the evidence, this is certain. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The lie that the enemy sows into our hearts when we go through sorrow and difficulty is that God has walked away. The sense of abandonment and isolation and aloneness that we feel is what drags our eyes away from God's presence and God's grace. But if you are in that dark place this morning, I am not a preacher who will ladle on you guilt. I'm not someone who's going to tell you you have to try harder, that you have to work harder, that you have to pray more or give more or worship more or do anything more. My word for you this morning is that even in the midst of that fruitless, barren season and you can't see him and you may not see him and you may not feel him, God is still there because he never walks away from his people. Habakkuk reached that place not because he stopped asking questions but because he began to ask honest questions. He came to a place where his relationship with God was profoundly, profoundly open and vulnerable. You don't need to leave this meeting this morning ashamed of your questions. You don't need to listen online and think I must never ask a question again. That's not the point I'm making. The point that I'm making is even in the midst of your questions, God can be present. To hold and to sustain and to carry and to help. From Psalm 13 and its opening words, from Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 3, where Habakkuk opens the, the, the whole book with, How long, O Lord? All the way through to Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, God's people have said, how long, O Lord? Authentic faith isn't afraid of the question. But it gets to the place where Habakkuk got here this morning, where we can get to, where Job got to. I know that my Redeemer lives. Or in the words of Job chapter 13, verse 15, even if he slays me, yet will I praise him. I think the honest thing is that for some of us, perhaps most of us, if we're really honest, that's not the kind of faith we have. We present as if we have that faith. 
But you don't know that you have the kind of faith that says, even if he slays me, yet I will praise him. Until you've lost everything. It's only when you walk through the darkest shadows that you can come to the place where you realize God is enough. And sometimes when you're in them, you go from feeling that he is to feeling that he isn't to feeling that he is to feeling that he isn't, depending on what's happening in your day. But God somehow carries us through, giving us small indications of his presence and his mercy, a doctor who smiles at us, a friend who sends a card at the right moment, a food parcel arriving, a blood count being changed, a a, a, a health test coming back slightly different, an assurance from scripture, a, a phone call at the right moment. In other people's eyes, not big, spectacular things. But to us, small indications that God is walking with us. That he'll carry us through this storm. As your pastor, I want to say to you this morning, God will not abandon you. He will not leave you. That's why Habakkuk is able to say in verse 18, And I will rejoice in the Lord and I will exult in the God of my salvation. It is a hard thing to rejoice in the ruins. But here you have a picture of this man standing with impending doom over the top of him and saying, I'm making a decision of my will. I'm lifting my eyes from my circumstances. I'm lifting my eyes from what's happening around me. I will exult in the God of my salvation. I will look not at what's happening around me, but at the character of the God that I serve. I will keep my eyes fixed on the one who has promised never to leave me. I will look to him. The only way that it is possible to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances is by lifting your eyes off the circumstances. How else can you do it? When Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter three, verse one, he said to them, finally, my sisters and brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then in chapter four, verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Here's the mistake I think we've made as modern Christians. We assume rejoicing is, yay, everything's gonna be great. That's not a biblical picture of rejoicing. That might be at times what we do, but a biblical picture of rejoicing is also standing with your heart breaking and saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to turn away from who you are. I can show you pictures of me rejoicing, not physical ones, you'll be glad to know, but me lying on the ground sobbing and saying, God, you've got to carry me through. That's me rejoicing. God, I don't know where you've gone. I can't feel you. I can't sense you. I have no um, felt reality of your presence, but I am building my life on your word and in the ruins of sorrow and heartbreak and uncertainty and betrayal and, and financial challenge or whatever it might have been over the years, even in the midst of these ruins, I am on my knees and I am declaring that I will rejoice in you. That's what rejoicing looked like. It looks like making a decision that says, I'm going to build my life around God. Nobody said that's easy. I don't think it's even physically possible in our own strength. But God promises us the gift of faith. Go back to Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, one of the key bits of this little book. And here is what Habakkuk says, the just will live by faith. 
What is faith? The evidence of things hoped for. The substance of things not seen. Faith is holding on to a promise. It's holding on to a conviction. When all the evidence points away, when your life is in a ruin, faith says there's a better day coming. There's a God who is good and should it be in the other side of eternity, God is still good. No matter what happens to me, God is good. How can that be possible physically? How can that be possible without God's help, without God's strength? As I was preparing this week with this message, I read verses 17 and 18 again. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. And I paused and I, there was an echo in my mind somewhere. I don't know if you've ever experienced this when you're reading the Bible and you think, I, that sounds like somewhere else in the Bible. Have you ever had that? I thought, I think it's one of the Psalms. So I read through the Psalms, couldn't find it. I thought, I must have missed it. I'll read them again. So I read them again and it still wasn't there. And I thought, this appears somewhere else. Not exactly this word, but like an echo or an impression of it. Three days I was searching the Bible because you can't look up a phrase in a concordance like that in the same way, even online, because it's not, I knew it wasn't exactly the same, but I found it. And it was the Virgin Mary. Listen to the words in Habakkuk. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will exult in the God of my salvation. Now go forward to Luke chapter one. She's just discovered that she's carrying a seed which is the son of God. And the echo was this for me. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my saviour. One of the most powerful verses in the New Testament about trust. In one of the most uncertain times, one of the most deeply problematic times. And this young girl, through a gift of faith, says, my spirit rejoices in God my saviour. My soul magnifies the Lord. I want to live like that. If you think, well, you know, I would have done that. I'm not sure I would have done that. I'm not sure how you would feel if your teenage daughter came home and said, um, Mum, I'm expecting, but it's God's. How many of you would have said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour? The sheer impossibility of it. And this young girl reaches a place where she's able to trust God. Her ruins look different. Sometimes when God intervenes in our lives, our plans look like upset apple carts, don't they? Everything is in control. Everything is exactly as we want it to be. And then God allows something to happen. And everything, everything is upset. The prayer that you answered for years, God says, I'm not answering it. Or I'm not answering it the way you want. I'm answering it with a no. It's hard to get through that and out the other side and say, I will still trust you. That thing you've longed for, that breakthrough that you've yearned after and it doesn't come. 
Habakkuk is about those types of situations where our lives don't turn out the way we wanted, where things don't happen as we had planned, where it all seems to be going the other way. And we say, yet in the midst of these ruins, I will rejoice, not in my circumstances, but in God. I will rejoice in his steadfastness. I will rejoice in his character. I'll rejoice in his love. I'll rejoice in his kindness and in his mercy. If you keep looking at your circumstances, they will destroy you. If you build your life around the immediacy of what you need to see right this very moment, it will consume you. The only thing that can get us through difficult moments is keeping our eyes firmly fixed on God. Lifting our eyes to God. Faith amidst fruitlessness. Rejoicing in the ruins. And then this powerful declaration of deliverance and trust in verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and he makes me tread upon the heights. I've said this on more than one occasion from this pulpit. It's not an original idea. It's taken from the Lord of the Rings. As your pastor or as your eldership or as your leaders or as your pastors, we can't take your problems. We can't take your heartbreak. But we, can, we can't carry them for you. But in the words of Sam to Frodo in the third book, when Frodo is on the edge of the mountain about to try and get rid of this ring that he's been carrying for too long and he can't get rid of it, and he says to Sam, I can't keep going. And Sam says to him, I can't carry it, but I can carry you. There's an awful lot talked about church community, how much we don't need it. There are times I need you to carry me. <laughs> God help you. And there are times that you need us to carry you. God the Lord is my strength. Don't always feel like that. But when you're part of a community where someone else can help you. It makes a difference, doesn't it? He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. God gives Habakkuk strength to stand. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He gives him courage to climb. He sets my feet on high places. He gives him grace to go. How does a young, vulnerable hind or foal make its way up a mountain to stand on a high hill on an extremely uncertain path where they fall and they falter and they trip many times? We all want to have hind's feet, but we're not always willing to make the difficult journey to stand in high places. I wonder if you've ever prayed, Lord, let my faith grow. Help me to be strong in you. Teach me how to trust you. And then difficulty, uncertainty, challenge. You have to face it. God can use those circumstances. I'm not sure I believe that he causes them all. 
But he can use those circumstances to help you grow. He can carry you through them. Years ago, when I was a youngin, Debbie and I were just dating. And she um, hasn't bought me, well, she's bought me many books in the latter half of my mari- our, our life together, but in the first couple of years our, of our married life, she bought me books that I thought were a bit odd. She bought me a book once called The Bumps Are What You Stand On. Um, uh, books about walking through difficulty and uncertainty and lots of things. She's been the most remarkable partner in ministry to me, as I have, I hope, not remarkable, but a partner to her. <laughs> But when, I was, when we were first courting, she bought me a book by a woman called Hannah Hernard, called Hind's Feet in High Places. Anybody read it? Based on these words from scripture, I dug it out the other day when I was preparing for this. Central to the story is a young um, character called Much Afraid, who is having to learn to trust God. Let me read you two excerpts from it. There are no obstacles which our Savior's love cannot overcome. The high places of victory and union with Christ can be reached by learning to accept day by day the actual conditions and tests permitted by God by laying down of our own will and trusting his. The lessons of accepting and triumphing over evil, of becoming acquainted with grief, and pain, and of finding them transformed into something incomparable. These are the lessons of the allegory of this book. When Much Afraid asks the shepherd about why they have to make a journey that is so perilous and uncertain, here's the reply. The high places answered the shepherd are the starting places for the journey down to the lowest place in the world. When you have hinds feet and can go leaping on the mountains and skipping on the hills, you will be able, as I am, to run down from the heights in the gladdest self-giving and then go up to the mountains again. You will be able to mount to the high places swifter than eagles. For it is only up on the high places of love that anyone can receive the power to pour themselves down into the utter abandonment of self-giving. In 1945, in Cologne, as the Allied forces were clearing the city, on the wall of a cellar, we don't know who wrote it, despite various claims on the internet that it was written in concentration camps in various places, it wasn't. Somebody who had hidden and was never found. We don't know whether they died and their body was removed or they escaped in the melee and confusion at the end of the Second World War. But somebody had written on the wall, I believe in the sun, even when it's not shining. I believe in love, even when I don't feel it. I believe in God even when he is silent. That is faith amidst fruitfulness, fruitlessness. 
That's rejoicing in the ruins. That's the declaration of ultimate deliverance in the desert. May God give us all that gift today. Amen. Please pray with me. While your eyes are closed and your heads are bowed to give you privacy here, in a few moments I will distribute bread, which is a symbol of Jesus' body broken on the cross, and fruit juice which is a symbol of his blood that was shed for us on the cross. You heard me say earlier on that God doesn't abandon his people. The only reason that that is possible is because he allowed his son to carry your sin, your shame, your heartbreak, your uncertainty, your brokenness. He comes today to give all grace, he will accept it. But the grace is offered through one man and one man only, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for you, who carried aloneness and abandonment for you, who carried heartbreak and shame for you, who took your yearnings and your grief and your sorrow and your confusion and buried it with him in the grave. This Jesus is the root and the ground of our hope. Coming to the Donald Elam will not save you. Reading the Bible, going to church, praying will not save you. The only person that can carry you through deserts is Jesus. But he is here today. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. And then I'm going to invite you to indicate to me whether you've responded to it. Father, for all those who long to know you today, would you come by the power of your spirit and grant forgiveness of sin? Would you take our shame, our wrongdoing, our despair and our sorrow and give us freedom and life and hope? For those that need to begin their lives again by being, making decisions to follow you today, Lord, would you give them the grace to follow Jesus? But I also pray for those who need grace in the midst of sorrow and sadness and heartbreak. I could name the obvious people in the room that need that, but Lord, you know every one of us. For those in the darkest season, carry them. Give them an evidence of your presence. Wrap your arms around them and those that they love. And release into their souls today the gift of faith. That they can trust you for today. 
come by the power of the Holy Spirit and give hope and courage to those that need it and faith to those that need it in Jesus' name. Whilst your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I have a sense that God has been speaking profoundly into people's lives here and online. If online you'd like to contact us, just drop my colleague an email, pip at dundonaldelam.church or give us a message on the Facebook page you're watching this and he'll be able to help you. But this week I want to be able to pray for those that have responded this morning. So if you've responded to one of those two invitations to begin a journey of faith with Jesus Christ or to renew your journey and ask him to help you in the midst of uncertainty, then no one else is looking. Just put your hand up and take it down again, would you? Nobody else's business. I'm not suggesting that you were out of relationship with the Lord. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you so much. You just may need God's grace. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You can take your hands down once you put them up. Is there anyone else? So as we come to communion, Lord, would you help us to remember Jesus Christ? The ground of our hope. The source of our life and the strength of our soul. In Jesus' name, amen.